Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about the knee of the curve of exponentiality. If you thought yesterday was fast, you haven't imagined the pace of tomorrow yet. Meanwhile, many organisations are run in a way that is perfectly prepared for a world that no longer exists. The future is a blend of the virtual and the physical, the digital and the analogue. Brands that know how to blend work, life, sleep, creativity, presence, absence and output seamlessly are those that are flexibly prepared for the future. Anders Sorman Nilsson is a global futurist, innovation strategist and TED speaker who helps leaders decode trends, decipher what's next and turns provocative questions into proactive strategies. Anders has shared the stage with Hillary Clinton, Nobel laureates and European and Australian heads of state. Exponentiality and the seamless future of work, a Florence Guild conversation with Anders Sorman Nilsson. Thank you. Thanks, Cami. And I, I should just say, Cami, can I just, um, just a little compliment as well. Um, it's going to be hard to zoom into it, but Cami is wearing a, a beautiful necklace tonight that, in fact, uh, just by coincidence, is the, um, is the, well, it's the infinity sign, but it's also actually the inspiration for the cover of my most recent book. I'm not going to try and sell you the book, but although you never miss a chance to invite people to buy. Um, <laughs> But it's the infinity sign, which of course is also sort of evident in, uh, well, somewhat evident at least in the cover of this book, which is called Seamless, which is one of the things we'll talk a little bit about today, uh, which of course um, has some really proud, um, proud historical sort of anecdotes. If you haven't uh, looked into uh, the uh, sort of symbolism of the infinity sign, please do so. Uh, it's one of the core things around my book, which is this seamless interweaving of the digital and the analog, or technology and tradition, and how the two actually can blend together, uh, proudly highlighted uh, last year by Pokemon Go, <laughs> where the virtual and the physical, of course, uh, are blending. Camille also invited me here tonight, and thank you very much for turning up on a, on a weekday evening. I know it's a, it's a, it's a big ask. Um, and she sort of said, Anders, uh, I know you're a technologist and you love your slides and videos and exploding charts and all this kind of stuff. But come and hang out here at the Florence Guild at the uh, work club and, uh, you know, let's just do it unplugged and uh, a little bit acoustic. Uh, who grew up in uh, the 80s with, like, MTV unplugged? So that's, that's like me, my geek rock star version here tonight of doing like MTV uh, Unplugged. So we're going to do a little bit of an acoustic version, which means, uh, and I was just telling Frank today that um, we were working uh, earlier on today with Meyer on a, on a big sort of change management project when it comes to their talent uh, adopting technology. Uh, but I thought tonight we'd just talk about 
a little bit of exponentiality and uh, maybe some things that are pertinent for you guys as, uh, as business owners, social entrepreneurs, anyone in NGOs in here tonight? On the board of a few. Yeah. Can you just throw out like some, some crazy work titles just so I know kind of who's who in the zoo and then we can probably tailor the, the content and the discussion. Sorry? <laughs> Ian, you go. Dog's body. What did you say? Dog's body. Dog's body. Yeah. Okay, nice one. All right, there we go. Please explain. <laughs> Do anything when it's required. Okay, cool. Good. Any other weird, wacky job titles or other things that you I'm do? A life strategist. Life strategist, fantastic. Mm -hmm. We've explored a little bit what that means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any anyone else? I think seriously got one, which is um, chief optimist. Chief optimist. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. And Cami, thank you for the exponential pour of wine. That's a that's a generous glass, by the way. Yeah. Any uh, others, Frank? I do a variety of things, and so putting together business title. Restricts me. Oh, good, good, cool. Anything else? I measure social impact. Measure social impact, cool. So from social entrepreneurs. Um, so I work for Lend Leads, so the impact of Lend Leads. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay, cool, fantastic. <coughs> and I believe we have a luxury brand strategist or maybe a media company as well. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Good. And a media curator for Virgin Airlines. So I'm exposing all of you and totally like deflecting attention back uh, to the audience. All right, cool. Anyone else volunteering? I'm an adjunct professor. Adjunct professor. Fantastic. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a second, that's a second tier job. What's the major? Cool. Which, which uh, university? At UTS. Okay. In the School of Oh, good. So you had your colleague here the other night, yes. uh, Roy, talking about yes, post-mining. Post okay, good. Fantastic. Uh, yes. Good. Cool. Uh, and I'm a futurist, which, uh, as I said before to Frank and Ian, basically means that my mum has absolutely no idea what I do for a living. Uh, maybe just we'll start with that job title and kind of uh, do a little bit of a open the kimono on, on that, and then we'll, we'll dig into the topic for tonight. And feel free to keep this uh, a dialogue. Um, I'm super happy to hear from you guys and get your thoughts on uh, the kind of strange, I guess, turning point in history that we're at right now in a post-fact world, uh, et cetera, and a world of artificial intelligence, where maybe artificial intelligence gives us more hope than human intelligence from the likes of Trump, et cetera. Uh, we might get a bit political tonight. But yeah, as a futurist, essentially I'm a reverse historian. We work with companies, in a sense, as a glorified uh, management consultant, or as my mum likes to call me, and as, uh, as a glorified astrologer. Is how she describes me to, to her friends, and uh, she goes, it would have been much simpler if you just stayed at Clayton Newton stayed being a lawyer once upon a time, because I could have explained what you actually do uh, to my friends back in Sweden over high tea or whatever she does in the afternoons. Uh, but as a futurist, we're essentially management consultants, and we do a lot of strategy work, future planning, scenario planning for, for big organizations like Cami pointed out. Um, today's topic is, and again, I have been asked to be ex well, to kind of be exponential, but also a little bit analog and, and unplugged. Uh, so that's what we're going to go with. So 
I've just jotted a few ideas down on the topic of exponentiality. Does that sound like a plan? Mm -hmm. Cool, because there's, there's no plan B. So <laughs> this, is what, this is what we're going to go with. Um, any mathematicians in the room? Fantastic. Can you do a, a layman's version of what exponentiality actually means and maybe a practical implication of exponential mathematics in our lives? Uh, for example, doubling. So uh, go back a couple of thousand years and uh, you know the king liked somebody who did something really clever and said, I'll grant you, uh, you know, any, anything within reason. And the guy said, OK, I'll give you, look, is this OK? Here's a chessboard, and I'll put one, you'll give me one grain of rice on the first board, two grains of rice on the next cell, four grains, eight grains, 16 grains. And the king looked at that and said, yeah, that's fine. Let's go for it. I'll give you that. By the time you reach the 64th square on a chessboard, you basically have an amount of rice that is bigger than the earth. You know, you, that's exponentiation. If you keep doubling, you know, you double 10 times and you get up to 1,000. You double 20 times and you're up at a million. You double 40 times and you're up at uh, a trillion. Is Frank a plant? Because this is a pretty good <laughs> definition. I was like, cross out the first story. <laughs> Thank you for saving me heaps of time, Frank. Fantastic. Yeah. Great, great example. Everybody categorizes me. I'm a mathematician because that's fun. I yeah. actually prefer to do lots of other things. Yeah, cool. I think it's a, it's a good explanation of, of it, and I think it's one of the, the sort of, you know, um, it is one of the kind of key tenets of not only the exponentiality, but it's the example that we frequently hear about when it comes to exponentiality. Um, yeah. Did you say you'd much rather do other things than the things that's fun? Uh, no, there's a whole host of things that are fun. Mathematics, oh, okay. is, mathematics is one of those. One and mathematics, for people who got scared at the word mathematics, mathematics is a form of art when you get deep into it. It's not numbers, even though the example I did was numbers. Mathematics is patterns. Cool. That's the important thing. So we're already getting fairly deep here tonight, which is really really the purpose of, of, uh, of this evening. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good explanation of uh, exponentiality. And unfortunately, whether you're a mathematician or whether you're a layperson, oftentimes as humans, we kind of suck at understanding exponentiality, which might uh, explain uh, the billions and billions of dollars in unclaimed super that Australians currently have uh, floating around the ether uh, that we could use much more betterly. I'm making up my English grammar here at the moment. Uh, but of course, oftentimes we don't understand things like the practical implications of exponentiality, which one might be compounding interest, right? Which superannuation might be an example of, would you say? Very good example of that. Okay. Yep. And how long does it take if you say, what's the rule of 72? Yep, take an interest rate 72 divided by that interest rate is how many years it takes to double. So 8% interest, 8 into 72 goes 9 times. It'll take 9 years to double if you get an 8% interest rate. Cool. Who's getting uh, like 10% a year from your financial advisor or your robo-advisor if you happen not to use a human? Not too many people. No, not too many people. How long would it take if you got 7.2 years? 
let's say seven. seven years to double your money if you're getting 10% uh, average annual returns, right? So this is just how exponentiality is sort of applied in our lives. But as human beings, we tend to understand linear growth versus exponential growth. Uh, one of my favorite, as a, I've run my business now for 12 years all, all over the world, we have clients in four continents. And one of the favorite questions I've ever been asked uh, was actually uh, by a strategist called Vern Harnish. Uh, some of you might have heard about Entrepreneurs Organization. Vern Harnish is sort of a critical component of that. And he posed this great question, which is, how can you double your results with half the effort? And this is like a mantra in my mind when I do business all of the time. How can I get 2x the result with half the effort? Now, that's not quite exponential. It's even faster than that, right? No, that's exponential. That's exponential. Anyway, it's a knee of the curve that goes very, very quickly, right? Does anyone feel like the last 10 years have moved very, very quickly? Mm. Right? Um, the bad news for all of us is, of course, the world is about to get really fast. Uh, according to what's known amongst futurists as the singularity time scale, 2015 was the year when uh, computing power trumped the brain power of a mouse. Kind of an amazing technological achievement, isn't it? But if you look at, of course, exponential computing, that means by already by 2023, the computing power will trump the brain power of a human in New Zealand. It's going to take a little bit longer, yeah. <laughs> I say exactly the same thing in New Zealand about Australia. And Swedes always <laughs> sort of play both sides of the fence. Um, and by 2045, Computing power will trump the brain power of all of us humans combined. Uh, anyone into science fiction or uh, movies about artificial intelligence like Ex Machina, etc.? Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence gone haywire, a few, few in the audience. And th this fascinates me, just how quickly technology moves and how quickly industries and companies seem to disappear. Uh, I think the heartening news in all of this is that increasingly we are augmenting our human intelligence with artificial intelligence. Um, I've got a little hero in, uh, in my life uh, called, um, well, I've got two heroes actually in my life at the moment. I've got a one-month-old at home called Lucian. Uh, this is my night off. Um, and Lucian's pretty amazing. He's, uh, he was born on June 22. He's my firstborn. And... When, we, when Nicole and myself were sort of studying up on children and babies and how they grow and what kind of parents we want to be and all of this kind of stuff, one of the facts that jumped out at me was the fact that babies in their first three years of life learn more and form more synaptic connections than at any other three-year time in their lives or three-year period in their lives. I find that fascinating. I mean, that's like, could that be exponential Frank? No. Not quite exponential, but fairly no, fast. Think, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's fast growth, and it's growth that we're never able to replicate later on in life, despite our neuroplasticity and the fact that our brains can evolve through our entire lives, and even old dogs can learn new tricks. So Lucian's one of my uh, little heroes when it comes to not just learning and exploring the world, learning to become quite a quite a 
profound salesperson. His emotional intelligence is through the roof already. He gets what he wants uh, when he wants it most of the time through the limited communication methods that he has, body language, screaming, uh, etc. Et um, he's very, very influential. Uh, and I think this is fascinating. He, in one month, he's gone from an aquatic life to like a terrestrial life. He's had to learn how to poop, uh, how to pee, how to eat, how to feed, uh, and all of that within a month. I think that's fairly, fairly astounding. Uh, so kids, kids are pretty amazing. Uh, my other hero is a 10-year-old boy here in Sydney. He's the 10-year-old son of um, one of my colleagues in my company, Emma Harpham, and her husband, Aaron Harpham. His name is Max Harpham. Uh, he's a really cool kid. He loves his um, extreme sports. He uh, is into skateboarding. Uh, he loves the outdoors. He's also a really good little football player, or soccer as we call it in Australia. Um, I'm a football tragic from Europe, so the fact that he was the top goal scorer and won the best and fairest award last season for the under nine Norman Hurst Eagles makes me very proud. Uh, that's particularly in a context where 10 years ago, where he, when he was born, he was born profoundly deaf, which means that if a freight train went past his back or if he tried to cross the road here, he would not be able to hear any truck that was about to impact him um, on his skateboard. He's got very chilled out parents, or at least they're chilled out now because of a great Australian innovation called the cochlear implant, of which he has two, one behind each ear, implanted into his brain. Now there's digital signal where there was no analog signal whatsoever. And I think these simulations and what the singularity timeline transhumanists get really excited about is this fusion of biology and technology. Uh, whether that's via a pacemaker or the future of nanorobots in our bloodstreams, uh, this leads us to having maybe not to fear robots so much like we do when we read the CSIRO reports about 50% of all New South Wales jobs being up for roboticization or digitization in the next 10 to 15 years. But maybe it's more of a heartening way of thinking about the, the digital future. Have you got any thoughts on that so far? The optimism yeah. is refreshing. <laughs> As opposed to the cyber dystopian uh, mm. views of the future. Mm. Mm. The other thing is the Yeah, and of course with all of this, I think uh, it is very wise as the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world would say to be, to be very cautious and to be mindful and a little bit paranoid when it comes to the power of, uh, of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, the thing that scares me is not so much machine learning and, uh, and the ability for Moore's law and computing power to double every 18 to 24 months. It's just how woefully slow we as human beings are. <laughs> I think in terms of whether it's quarterly reports or just the news cycle and, and media hype, um, <laughs> I think we've all become, in a sense, uh, you know, stimulus junkies. We love getting a, a quick update uh, via Facebook, check our Facebook news feed, uh, check what Trump has said overnight. Uh, get our notifications from Huffington Post, etc. I mean, th this is in many ways sort of addictive. Uh, one of the things I love doing is tuning into the kind of the long news 
uh, as, a, as a discipline and also to subscribe to media that do slow journalism. So I subscribe to a number of magazines that are uh, very much, you've heard about the slow food movement, mm -hmm. but they're sort of decidedly in the slow journalism movement. Uh, uh, whether you like them or not, depending on where you think they sit politically, I think the New York Times is a great example of even, you know, a, you know, a daily, weekly uh, that does just better in-depth uh, journalism than some of the stuff we see, which is just clickbait. Um, I would also say that I don't think the full potential of the world of digital has fully impacted our behaviours day to day yet, but some researchers at Stanford... Um, coined a term which they call the Proteus effect, uh, which from a wealth management perspective uh, is this idea that your avatar or your digital representations or even who you're portraying that you are in social media can actually have a real world impact on your analog human behavior. So they found that people who saw uh, themselves or a photo of themselves getting aged to retirement aged were way more likely to to make, I think it was up to 30% more savings today for a rainy day later in life, as opposed to just seeing a photo of any pensioner or any retirees. But when they saw their own face, aged, who wouldn't want to be part of this uh, <laughs> experiment, right? <laughs> but just the fact that that digital avatar representation of them just hit home uh, for them in a way that actually today changed their uh, behaviours, which I think is interesting. Um, I think it was uh, Warren Buffett who said something to the effect of, you know, if I go and get my hair cut today, do I really want this haircut to cost me $300,000 by the time I'm 78? Because that's how he thinks about, you know, yeah. he doesn't have the best haircut. Uh, however, <laughs> however, that's, that's how he thinks about spending a dollar today. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for me what's heartening about all of this, my mum, for some of you that might have uh, come across me in the past, uh, you'll know that my mum runs a small uh, menswear shop in Stockholm, Sweden. So when I say I wear my mum's clothing, it's <laughs> neither particularly progressive or eccentric. Uh, it's just what happens in our family business. Um, but she runs this small little shop in Stockholm, Sweden, and she... Uh, it's now 101 years of age. For the last 11 years, she's tried to keep it alive uh, artificially with her life savings, her, her Swedish version of superannuation, to artificially prop it up in an era of digital disruption, uh, which might explain one of the reasons that I'm a, a futurist. I grew up in a, in a world without technology, so I had to go and get the toys elsewhere. Um, but she thinks of the future as uh, digitally dehumanized, and I think of the world... Uh, say, the, a world of acorns, a, a world of the Proteus effect or a, an aging of an avatar that can actually nudge us. Um, you should read up on Richard Thaler's book, Nudge, if you haven't done so. Nudging us into smarter decisions today that will impact us, not just in the short term, but positively also in, in, in the long term. Uh, and that ability of the mobile interface, uh, of the progress principle, that we've heard about from HBR or Harvard Business Review that the most motivating thing we can have at work every day, to get back on track, Cami, to the seamless future of work. <laughs> Good. Um, 
you know, the progress principle, which is that the most motivating, most inspirational day of work is when you feel like you're making progress on something. It doesn't have to be rocket science, but just seeing that you move from A to B and then you're making progress is a nice thing. And I think the digital, the mobile interface is able to do that. Does anyone use Acorns here in the room? Yeah, fantastic. I'm not advising you to do this. Talk to your financial advisor or your robot, whoever manages uh, your finances for you. But I do think that that's an example of something that's beautiful and it's seamless. Uh, I think it was Steve Jobs who said that uh, technology should be, actually not Steve Jobs, but um, John Scully, uh, who got hired by uh, Steve Jobs to run Apple for a little while. Um, he said technology should either be beautiful or invincible. And I think Acorns is an example of something that just beautifully sits uh, in the background. So when you pay, how much do you pay for an espresso here? You guys don't have to pay today, of course. But like, Between what would... Three and five dollars. Three and five dollars in this bar? Yeah, okay, it's something like that. Highly inflated because Australia has the best coffee in the world. Sorry, what was that? Three fifty here. Three fifty here. So every time you go here, for example, what Acorns would do is they would round that $3.50 up to the nearest dollar, invest the 50 cents difference seamlessly in, in the background. And then whenever you feel like tuning in, you can see how you're progressing from day to day and how your savings are growing. You can also opt in to make a, a voluntary contribution uh, that's just automatically deducted. And I find this fascinating in terms of what they were able to do. Just last year in Australia, Acorns, without really any marketing budget, had 100,000 new acquisitions in terms of customers who not only just downloaded the app, but also set up their account. And for our banking clients like Westpac and ANZ, Macquarie Bank, if you said, here's 100,000 millennials that want to be your customers, they would all like fall over themselves to have that. And the interesting thing is that that technology was actually launched over 10 years ago by Bank of America uh, in something they call, I think, Invest the Change or Invest the Difference. And I'm just going, how slow are incumbents at using new technology? Why did it take Acorns to launch this via a mobile app? Yet they did. And it, what I love about it is that it just seamlessly works into your life takes two minutes to set up. Of course, talk to your financial advisors to see if it's right for you. Right? You set your risk profile accordingly as well. My, my other comment on this would be uh, in terms of our long-term perspectives and retirement ages and all of that. Um, we've recently co-contributed and, and run a scenario planning exercise for Zurich um, uh, insurance and investment firm. Um, on the future of financial advice and the role of, the, of financial advisors in the year 2020, 2025, sort of looking down the barrel into the crystal ball of the future. And one of the things we come up with is the idea of, hey, are we going to have to work till 75? How do we retrain people who maybe don't speak digital uh, natively or without an accent in, in, in the future? Uh, and are robots going to do our work? And what kind of lifestyle do we want? Is the great Australian dream still the, the house and the picket fence, or might it be something totally different now that you have both grey nomads, so people who are just unshackling themselves and driving around a win, with a Winnebago, or the people who love remotability or working from anywhere around the world, which many millennials are opting in for in the, in the gig economy, um, where on nomad list, has anyone been on nomad list, the website? 
Okay. What does Nomad List do? A fantastic website that basically ranks different cities based upon your lifestyle criteria. So if, if you're into like skiing, they go, why don't you like move to Vancouver because it's 45 minutes away or an hour away from Whistler uh, and uh, you have internet speeds of X, Y, Z. Uh, if, you're, if you're gay, it's gay friendly. If you're multicultural, it's very, very tolerant of you know, different ethnicities. Uh, but if your criteria in terms of your life and who you want to be and hang out with are different, you can search for that as well. So if you like the sun, uh, you can see how many sun hours are in different cities, etc. And it's, it's set up for the digital nomad who just wants to work around the world wherever that happens to be. So uh, check out Nomad List. Uh, uh, and of course, collaborative workspaces are kind of part of that. Uh, might be one search function, in fact, uh, beyond broadband speeds. Where are the cool places to hang out and meet other interesting people, like at Florence Guild, for example? Are we totally off topic? Or uh, <laughs> All right. Um, so I thought um, I'd see if there were... Um, I just wanted to give you a couple of uh, sort of practical examples of where where I see us maybe running into some trouble, but also where things are fairly heartening. Um, have, has anyone seen that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Okay. Um, I think we should all respond no to that question. Uh, and in fact, at the University of Otago uh, in New Zealand, uh, great research coming out of New Zealand, um, They've shown that the average IQ test score, uh, going back to the 1950s, keeps going up by between three and seven points every decade. Uh, which means, if you traced things back, say, to the 1970s, um, to when Holland was still... Any Dutch people in the room? Okay. All right. Kind of. So when the Dutch national team was still winning titles... Oh, yes. Okay, uh, back in the 1970s, basically half the Dutch adult male population could not cognitively understand the rules of soccer. That's how dumb we were uh, back in the 1970s. We are getting smarter, but it's in a fairly, would you say, linear fashion. Um, well, I'd say it's definitely in a spurious fashion. Yeah, spurious fashion. And some people would argue with Professor uh, Flynn from the University of Otago as well. Some people would say, hey, you know, concepts like 3D or 4D or 6D uh, or um, other more modern concepts are much more available to us via, say, YouTube, etc. So, of course, kids through the Khan Academy or whatever are learning and are exposed to this in a way we wouldn't have been 100 years ago or 75 years ago. So, uh, yeah, there are some question marks about the, the, the Flynn effect. But I think it's heartening that, you know, kids are becoming smarter, at least learning how to hack the test. Uh, but still, maybe spurious or more linear growth. And then I think about in a, in a race against the machines that are outpacing us with machine learning, how do we combine the best of human emotional intelligence with the best of uh, artificial intelligence? And I thought of a couple of examples, and maybe for those of you... Uh, who are in business, um, these, these might relate to you. Um, the first example would be uh, in this concept of exponentiality and I guess seamlessly interweaving both human emotion and, and empathy with your customers 
but also with a technological interface, would be to ask if anyone here has had to do an insurance claim recently or can recall the frustration of having to do one. Uh, did anyone have to fill in some paperwork? Yeah? Okay. Uh, did anyone call up the call center to get a status update on when the claim was going to get paid? Okay. Up to 50% of all phone calls to insurance companies are from people making status update phone calls. Just going, hey, you know, where, where's my claim at? Uh, do you think that that might be quite costly for them? So then I switched from traditional incumbents to the world of digital. Uh, there's a company called Lemonade uh, that proves that in business it's now possible in a world of digital to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, in, other way, in other words, give better customer experiences at lower cost through the digital interface. Um, and what Lemonade does uh, and the way they design their customer journey is very much based on design thinking and, and uh, behavioral economics principles. Uh, one of the, I think it's the, one of the, he's either the CEO or one of the board members is Dan Ariely, who some of you might have heard about from uh, Predictably Irrational, another book uh, recommendation for you guys, uh, who's one sort of, of the sort of four horsemen of uh, behavioral economics and uh, together with, I think, Daniel Kahneman and a few others. Uh, I keep looking at you, Frank, because just... I've the, been reading behavioral economics since yeah. 1980. Okay, cool. So. And also just your beard is awesome. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting Gandalf vibes. <laughs> That's yeah, like... Uh, yeah. The other one, and uh, at Christmas, it's Father Christmas. Yeah, I think next time I want to see like the big stick from Lord of the Rings, uh, would be fantastic. Uh, it's too dangerous. Okay, right. <laughs> we need in the, in the spirit of like the Florence Guild, I think like a big cool stick would be something we could incorporate. It would be on brand, yeah. All right, where were we? So, Gandalf, and then back behavioral economics. Um, Lemonade. So what Lemonade does is they've set a world record in terms of how quickly it is for you to file a claim to then having that claim being processed and the insurance company running it for, uh, for fraud, so uh, fraud protection to make sure that your claim is actually valid, to paying it out in three seconds. <laughs> and what you do... Uh, and by the way, the, the business model works in such a way that it's a peer-to-peer -peer business model, which is, uh, according to my mates who work at Huddle, which is a peer-to-peer -peer insurance company here in Sydney, um, that's really cool. You should check them out, by the way. Um, but they said insurance is the oldest peer-to-peer -peer business model. But anyway, what these guys do is that if there's anything of your premium that's left over at the end of the year, if you haven't claimed, that money that gets left over in the pool of the peer-to-peer -peer network gets reinvested in a charity or a cause that you believe in. Do you think psychologically or behaviorally you're less likely to make a fraudulent claim if you feel like you're stealing from the local school? Right? So very clever model because of course people don't do that. But also the way that you make a claim, when they set the world record, um, somebody had lost their Canada goose jacket on the New York subway. They speak in the claim into the Lemonade mobile app. Uh, 
via facial recognition, 18 different AI algorithms are run to do the fraud protection. Uh, you speak in your claim through voice recognition, the claim is processed uh, and the payment was triggered three seconds later. And then the guy remembered it was it actually at home, it wasn't Yeah, exactly. So he got to eat his cake and have it too, right? <laughs> exactly. And he could, you know, at the, at the next station, pop out to the Canada Goose uh, store and, and get a new one. Um, but I think that's a wonderful example of just how a business model can today sort of go exponential. They have no human uh, insurance brokers. When you guys bought your insurance, did you go through a broker or direct online or by an aggregator? So they cut out the middleman. And as a customer, you get a much better experience. Because essentially when we care about the insurance is when we want to be made whole again, right? And they do that by artificial intelligence in a way where the digital interface is actually more empathetic than a human. And I think those sort of examples for me are heartening and might indicate a future where we do less of the shit work like paper pushing and handling paper and just putting up bureaucratic boundaries but actually focusing on, on the core of what it means to be human. And they do that in a wonderful seamless fashion. I think that's one of the things, whether it's Uber or anybody else in this world, whether you like them or not, they're very controversial, um, but they've spoilt us with this idea of this, this sort of the seamlessness of, of a service uh, of, you know, before I, I remember just, just the friction. I think that there should be a war on friction. Um, just how much customers hate the friction of having to order. I remember before Uber, I've been averaging sort of around 240 international travel days a year for the last six years, um, which is changing now with a little one, by the way, I can assure you. Um, I think it, we did the big data analysis on this a few years ago that we did 38% more miles covered than Hillary Clinton in her final last year, full year of, as history, uh, as history, as Secretary of State, easy to say if you're Swedish, uh, which was, um, no mean feat, although she flew Air Force Two, which is way cooler. Um, but uh, before Uber, I remember ordering silver service taxis because they were the only ones you actually kind of had some level of faith that they were going to turn up. And even after coaching their call center, you know, with that amount of flights, hundreds of times to say that, hey, even though my address is this, like the entrance to my apartment block is on Mackey Street, even though like I'm on Ann Street, but the, like come to the entrance. They just would never update the database or communicate to their drivers. And then of course they would charge you 10% extra for using your credit card. And you'd have to dig into your salvage jeans, which is really hard to get out your wallet and then sign something or do the pin. There was just, oh, this sounds like super brat, spoiled. But there were so many moments of friction in that. And Uber has now taught us that whatever transaction we should have to think about, it should just be seamless, a non-event in the background. Um, we're doing some work at the moment as brand advocates and spokespeople for, uh, for Visa in terms of they're now a payment technology company, no longer a credit card company. Uh, 
And it's all about the seamless transaction happening in the background uh, as a non-event. I mean, Australians love like PayWave because it saves us, what, four seconds at the, at the <laughs> checkout. Uh, but still, those four seconds we invest wisely into you know, a couple of more Facebook updates or whatever. So we love the seamlessness of, of things. Uh, and I think we're getting spoiled with, with that in, in life at the moment. And isn't it amazing how uh, PayWave only came in a few years back and it was such a foreign concept and now it's just embedded. We're just so used to it, that idea of things that are seamless you've become so comfortable with. Yeah. I feel like they were there always. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I love this getting back on topic to some degree. Um, the idea of seamlessness is one that goes back historically, but it's got such a modern, you probably hear it all the time if you're reading in business media, you know, seamless technology and seamless experiences and all that kind of stuff. But I love the fact that seamlessness actually, you know, it's a metaphor uh, for the, you know, the perfect garment. And whether you're religious or, or not, goes back to the seamless robe of Jesus even. And so the idea of seamlessness or the fact that Jesus is supposedly his historical garb was made as one piece without any seams. That's the idea that something is like really soft on your skin and it has nothing to grind, no frustration. Uh, and of course, even in modern textile, in the modern, modern textile economy, that's still something that to this day exists. My, uh, my partner, Nicole, runs a swimwear label called Ephemera. She's a swimwear designer. And she loves this idea of, you know, potentially one day doing like the seamless one-piece swimming suit. You know, that would be a, sort of a magnificent thing uh, in terms of just the kind of ultimate in customer satisfaction and customer empathy because there's just nothing to grind, nothing that can break. It's just one, uh, one piece. And that's the sort of idea of seamlessness. And of course, when we talk about technologies today, whether it's Uber, whether it's Acorns, uh, whether it's Lemonade, the insurance company, this idea of seamlessly connecting with your customers is sort of becoming king. Um, one comment on uh, Uber that I've written down here today, uh, despite their, uh, we talked a little bit about this before, Frank, um, the controversy surrounding their culture, etc. One thing that they do fairly well is tweak behaviors positively. So Uber in the United States have teamed up with Betterment, which is an online financial robo-advisor, uh, to ensure that their drivers can automatically opt in to have 10% of every fare that they earn be automatically invested into their 401k accounts, their version of superannuation, Cami, right? Um, which, of course, again, goes back to the point of if you make better behaviors seamless and easy and you're ha happy to nudge people into better behaviors today, people might actually do it. But if you make it really filled with friction, people just can't be bothered. So if it's one piece of advice that I want to give to all of you today is just to try and make things super easy. Uh, we recently signed up for insurance, and I'm just like, why should it be so difficult? Uh, we got some new car insurance. We ended up going with Huddle, but 
um, I've learned recently to do my digital due diligence. So we like canvassed all the different car insurances uh, and came up with the fact that Huddle, for us at least, uh, in our particular circumstances, again, talk to your insurance brokers or whatever, or your artificial intelligence. Um, for us, that was the best option. I'm not endorsing them here. It was just that their experience was such as, we've been doing go-get car sharing for ages because um, my partner Nicole and I don't believe in car ownership necessarily, uh, although now we're financing it. I've had to enter a new phase of life where maybe having a car uh, on call uh, constantly is a little bit easier with a young one. Um, so we switched from go-get to uh, at least a business financing model. And Huddle was really seamless for us. It was super easy via beautiful interface, the best interface out of any Australian car insurer. Uh, also a peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, they reinvest your premiums uh, into projects around the world that you might believe in, like environmental projects, because yes, we have a guilty conscience that we now own a car. So they go, we're going to invest that into environmental projects. Plus, we'll offset all your carbon emissions, not just for buying a car, but all your carbon emissions uh, from you, the usage of your car as well. So we're like, okay, cool. And they were the cheapest because you're only paying on demand for the miles that you actually use the car for. Because a lot of people are overinsured when it comes to their car. Uh, because oftentimes it comes down to the amount of miles that you actually think you're going to drive, but you end, don't end up driving them because the average Australian car stands idle for 23 hours a day. Well, I think we were talking about it before, whether it was like whether um, Uber is like breaking the law or as um, David Rorschheim, um, who's the general manager of Uber in Australia, he calls it civil di disobedience. Uh, we're not breaking the law, we're just being civil disobedient. Uh, being civil, civilly disobedient, is that right in English? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so, I mean, certainly they've challenged through the court system and in other ways uh, a variety of different state and national uh, legislatures. And at times Uber's had to, to pull out as well. Um, I think launching a service like they did that gets mass adoption just means that people just won't go back. Yeah. Uh, and that service is so phenomenally, um, you know, empathetic, at least as a customer, uh, that even if the Australian government just goes, actually, we're going to outlaw them, we're going to give you the taxis of five years ago, yeah. people will be really shitty. And like... And the fact of the matter is that whether Uber stays as the preeminent sort of standard or not, um, they've led to ta the taxi industry in parts of the world having to step up. So in Sweden, for example, now I've got mates who are shifting from Uber to taxis because the taxis have launched like black, well, not black taxis, but like a luxury model of taxis. They've launched an app that my mates in Sweden reckon is actually superior to the Uber experience. But the taxi industry in Sweden would never have done that if it hadn't been for, for, for Uber, for example. Uh, and yes, we also, of course, we've heard about Airbnb for Youngs, and I think there's a, a, a couple of 
uh, comments on on Airbnb as well. Obviously, they're they're challenging uh, the incumbents um, as well, both in um, business to consumer, but also B two B or business travel, uh, and making a big impact in in, in that space. Um, in terms of seamlessness, um, and this is sort of the counter example to maybe prove the prove the argument that seamlessness is important. Um, they found that when they introduced too much seamlessness into their business model, it actually backfired. So any, any hosts or, um, or visitors on, yeah, a few hosts. Um, so when they went, um, like, um, so when, when Airbnb launched the ability of people browsing your home to book instantly or instant booking, people started freaking out a bit because they're like, actually, we want humans who share their own home and the people that go into that home to actually have a little bit of friction just to build glue, right? So it was like a couple of messages of roughly the same length talking a little bit about, hey, we like the look of your home. We're coming to town for a conference um, I'm also extending for a long weekend because my loved ones are flying in as well. That bit of friction actually built human trust. Uh, so while I'm a big proponent of seamlessness, in that particular example for Airbnb, um, it sort of failed. And there was an interesting example in the New York Times just recently where some people are saying, hey, we've been on Airbnb for ages uh, because we want to meet humans and they're professionalizing and corporatizing the experience uh, too much. So, so much so that business travelers just come into my home. I used to run a B&B where I got to hang out in the lounge room like this and talk to my guests and serve them uh, my latest homemade granola. And now I've got business travelers who come in and just ask, you know, they're just expecting me to behave like a maid in my own home for them uh, because they've gone too far down a particular uh, path as well. I'm not sure whether that's solving systemic issues. Um, it's a little bit of an aside, but maybe that's what we're doing tonight. Um, I do think that um, governments and, and city governments and state governments need to be adopting these new technologies in, in, a, in a legislative, but also maybe an open API sense as well. Uh, any users of Waze here to get to work faster, yeah. So Waze is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a glorified GPS, but with a social layer built into it, um, sort of gamifying the whole traffic experience every day. Um, but I just imagine like Waze actually being integrated. So say we all turn on our Waze tonight as we make our merry way into Sydney. And then Sydney streetlights actually going, hey, Waze is way better than Navtech or the GPS in your vehicle. So why don't we set the traffic lights based upon where people actually are, based on their ways, which of course sends data back up to the cloud so that all the traffic lights don't just correspond to what Sydney thinks or the traffic authorities here in Sydney thinks, but actually based on real time. Uh, user data. I think that would be maybe uh, uh, a step, a step forward.
Yeah, when, 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 when's that being launched? Um, on transport, and maybe this will be sort of uh, departing comments, and, and then you know, feel free to hang around for, for drinks and just uh, general uh, chatter. Um, one thing I jotted down here on, on the idea of, um, well, actually, two, two, two ideas. Um, again, I wanted to come back to Vern Harnish, who I know some of you are familiar with. Um, on exponentiality. Uh, if you haven't read about the power of one or uh, uh, make sure you download an Excel spreadsheet from online called the power of one. Uh, this is a super tactical thing. Uh, it just looks at like five to seven different things in your business that if you tweak them by like 1%, what would be the exponential impact in your business if you just improve them by 1% or if you made a 2% saving here or 10% improvement there, and you can kind of simulate what your business might look like if you are a business owner. Uh, worthwhile doing that little simulation to kind of go, actually, sometimes change is not so difficult, and sometimes if we just raise our prices by 1% and decrease our you know, debtor days by 1%, the cumulative effects, again, are potentially exponential. Tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, Frank. No, that's yeah, that's fine. Good. We've got the mathematicians. The mathematicians we've got, we, we've got Frank Gandalfs, the math mathematicians. <laughs> Good. Fantastic. I'm expecting this like sort of thump in the ground after every time you make a profound statement like this. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so the final comment maybe was um, this wasn't publicized a lot, um, but I think it's a nice example that, again, is heartening in a digital kind of way. Uh, as I said, my mum is, is deeply distrustful of the digital world. She thinks of it as digitally dehumanized. Um, last year, before moving back to Surrey Hills, um, I spent a year living up at Elvina Bay, up at Pittwater, which was a magnificent experience on, on living uh, offshore in Australia. I had to take the boat uh, to Australia, which was uh, kind of cool, uh, to mainland Australia. Wonderful part of the world. If you haven't been, it's worthwhile uh, making a little excursion uh, up, up that way if, if you haven't already been. Um, certainly safe if you're a prepper when the zombie apocalypse happens. Um, if you haven't heard about prepping, make sure you start watching uh, some prepping and uh, zombie apocalypse shows. That's my other piece of advice. But um, when I was living there, I uh, had a, a German uh, guy up there who runs the pink water taxi service uh, from Church Point, uh, who was always telling me great tales from, from Europe. And uh, he, he tuned me into this particular story, which I thought was interesting. Um, and again, I'm just going to apologize here tonight if, if I offend anyone by this particular illustrative example. If anyone, have, if ever, if anyone has uh, loved ones or family, friends who um, got impacted by the two events I'm about to talk about, um, I do apologize uh, preemptively. Uh, I do think it's an illustrative example of how technology can, however, make our lives better and how they might even solve uh, for human error. Um, so in 2016, uh, on Bastille Day in Nice, there was a horrific uh, attack uh, by someone who espoused um, uh, at least alliances with or having been inspired by ISIS to carry out a horrific attack on the Esplanade in Nice. The guy was able to drive a Renault truck, what I call a dumb truck, uh, 
uh, for 1.6 kilometers before he was stopped, or this piece of ideological human error was stopped by bullets from um, from the uh, from the French police force and special forces who were put into that situation. Uh, he would have happily kept driving to maximise the human carnage. 90-plus people died, 450 people are still injured from that event, and many more suffer post-traumatic stress, uh, post stress disorder from it, of course. Um, and then let's compare and contrast that with an attack that happened six months later in Germany, uh, where the, again, ISIL or ISIS-affiliated terrorist decided to hijack a Scania truck, a Scania truck that was built after 2012 EU directive that stated that any truck in the EU had to be part of the Internet of Things, had to be equipped with automatic sensors and automatic brake systems that could automatically detect if uh, there was going to be human carnage. Uh, the terrorist chose his truck in a way that didn't optimize the human carnage for him. He chose the Scania truck, which unlike in the previous attack, actually shut him down. The Scania truck used in the Berlin Christmas market attacks in December last year, the truck shut him down. Even though the guy had his foot on the accelerator trying to impact more people negatively and tragically, was stopped by the truck because the truck through its sensors sensed that there was human carnage and would prevent him from impacting further lives. He then escaped because he couldn't do anything other than exit and try and run away to Italy where then, yes, he, his life was ended. Um, but I think for me this is sort of illustrative that in the future, if we take care, we can code for solving for some, at least, human error, uh, and where artificial intelligence can actually be influenced to some degree to stop human suffering, whether it's the loss of life or maybe even just friction uh, in doing our latest insurance policy. Uh, and on that note, <laughs> to lift the spirits again, uh, I'm happy to hand it over for reflections, statements of clarification, or uh, just general uh, banter. I know this conversation has gone left, right, and all over the place, but maybe that's what happens when you unplug and go acoustic for a little while. So, uh, Cami, thank you very much for having me here tonight, and thank you guys very much uh, for turning up. It's, uh, I know it's, uh, it's a lot to ask to be, uh, to be invited to something after hours when... Uh, when work uh, seems to occupy 24 hours of our day, including our sleeping time when we dream about the business possibilities of tomorrow. So thank you very much for turning up here today. Thanks. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.